You might have your Bibles now turned to 1 John chapter 2. We'll pick up in verse 28. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. The title of our message is Abiding Without Shame. What do we do now as we wait on the Lord to return? How do we act? How do we behave? Beginning in verse 28, going on to verse 3 of chapter 3. Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Well, I'm going to start today by taking a giant leap. Um, I'm going to suggest that probably every person here, at some point in their life, has disappointed their father. Someone here uh, is now probably thinking about a situation where they were a big disappointment. I know that's true of me. Uh, Of course, I do understand everybody's family circumstance is different. For you, it might have been a mother or a a grandmother who had raised you or possibly some other form of legal guardian or parental type. But there are a number of occasions I can recall where I was ashamed when my father found out about them. One in particular, it was when I was very young. Uh, It involved a a late-night visit from the local sheriff's deputy. Um, It was embarrassing to say the least. In fact, I I felt very ashamed. He visited with my folks. Thankfully, there were no legal consequences. Only my pride was ultimately hurt. But there were a number of occasions I can recall like that where I disappointed my father and mother. That's one that I will never forget. And that memory of shame, it might come to you right now as well. Uh, Of course, none of us have perfectly obeyed our parents or our legal guardians. But you know, the rewarding part of all of this is that my dad never stopped being my dad due to that incident. In fact, he didn't stop being my dad due to various, numerous incidents of disobedience that I committed through the process of maturing in life, right? In fact, Dad couldn't stop being my father. Uh, There was no way that that could happen, actually. Uh, Why? Because I was born to him, right? I had his DNA. He was my father. No matter what happened, by nature, nothing could change that. Because he's my father by birth. And you know, descendants, they're, they're easily identified of their parents. Uh, children look a lot like their parents, don't they? And I, I look a lot like my dad. I know that I climb up on a tractor like he did. I laugh like he did, Rita can tell you. I do a lot of things like he did when he was still alive. If I'm not careful, I'm going to grow a belly just like he did. Yeah. Most important, my mannerisms 
are like his. How I act, how I behave are a lot like dad. And though, of course, I'm not perfectly like dad, there's no question that I have a striking resemblance to my dad. All of our neighbors still know it and they affirm it today. Boy, when I look at you, I see your dad. Well, children look a lot like and they behave a lot like the parents to which they belong. I know that that really troubles some of you teenagers and younger folks here today. But there's going to come a day, there's going to come a day where you're going to embrace your parents' identity. As people grow older, as we all grow older, uh, we begin to embrace the ideals of our parents, those who raised us, and, and most of us eventually concede the fact that we look a whole lot like our parents did. Once we progress through that immaturity, that adolescence of discovering the truth about who we are, about our identity, that hesitation towards embracing that identity starts to decrease. And you overcome your independence, your pride, and you start to really embrace who you are. I know you, some might look in the mirror at that receding hairline in the back. Looking back there, maybe that part of you that is, is sagging, that you remember was, an, was characteristic of your parents. You begin to see yourself, you know what, that's all right. That's all right. I know who my daddy is. I know who my dad is. And because I love my dad, bearing that image, that reflection of him is okay with me. And, and you'll also start to realize, you know, that a lot of those traits, baldness, other things, the world might not accept those traits of your father or your mother as being very attractive, but to you they are. You believe they are because they make you look like your father. In fact, I'm delighted. I am who I am through birth, and I'm going to choose to abide in who my family is. Here's the kicker. Genetically, I don't have any choice anyhow. I'm going to look like what I'm going to look like. Sure, I can lose a few pounds, gain a few pounds, but there's nothing I can do to change who my father is. What I can do is decide to honor that identity. That, in a nutshell, is what we're looking at today in this passage. In a nutshell, are you going to live a life that brings shame upon your father and your family name? Or are you finally going to mature out of that spiritual adolescence and concede your foremost identity is a Christian? I'm going to live to honor my father and the son and the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm going to do. So before we look too closely at this passage, let me ask, does anyone here remember how Christians are added to God's family? It's through birth, right? It's through birth. That same process by which you were added to your, family, your human family, here it suggests we are reborn into a spiritual family. And you're a born-again believer by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit into your heart, and now you're in God's family. So now, we're considered in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we're what? We're children of God. We are children of God. And because of that spiritual rebirth, 
you and I don't have a whole lot of choice in the matter. You have been born again. The Bible nowhere speaks to the idea or the notion of being unborn again. That's impossible. You are a Christian. You are what you are by birth. There's nothing you can do about it. You might become a father's prodigal for a season. You sure might. But if you're born into God's family, you're a member of God's family, you'll remain with God's family because you've been rebirthed by that spiritual DNA. 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us that through God's grace and, and knowledge about Jesus Christ, that's the word about Christ, and by God's divine power, it says, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. By rebirth through the indwelling Holy Spirit, Christians have literally become children of God. Now, we don't become gods. We become children of God. Thus, we're heirs of God. We are heirs of God. I know this brings up a whole lot of questions, so let's go to our text. In verse 28, it says, Now, little children... Abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. As I said, God gives Christians spiritual rebirth by his Holy Spirit. Titus 3, chapter 3, verse 5 says, God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, very familiar verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a what? Gift of God, so that no one may boast. It's not a result of works. Faith itself is a gift from God. You know, it's, it's not something that we muster up. Faith isn't something we muster up. So salvation, it isn't about how special you are. You know, you're not saved because you're smarter than your neighbors or, or more attractive than your siblings. It's not that God saw something more promising in you than he does in someone else across the street. Your rebirth is not that you finally overcome, that you've empowered yourself enough because no one is going to boast before God. The faith is a gift. You can't boast before him because he's given it to you. Because salvation is not about how great you are. Forgiveness and mercy is about how great God is and what he has done in salvation. It is a gift. You bring nothing to the table and that's why the Bible calls it grace. It is free. It is Gratis. But once you are spiritually rebirthed, once you are born again, now you got some decisions to make. You've got some choices to make. You can either abide in his will, or you can live in a manner which doesn't. You can have confidence when Christ appears and you stand before him, he returns, or you can live in a manner by which you will shrink away in shame when Christ returns. That's your choice. 
That's the Christian's free will. The unsaved person doesn't have that choice. Unbelievers are not God's children. Their father, Scripture teaches, is who? The devil, right? The devil. And they look like, they act like, and they behave a whole lot like him, right? Some commentators, before I continue, uh, might suggest that this shrinking away that we see here is unbelievers shrinking away when he returns. I don't think so. I also, I think that MacArthur has a note in his, Bible stu- in his study Bible, if you've seen it, that says that unbelievers will shrink away. I don't think that's what I was describing here. I think the shrinking away isn't going to be their biggest problem. I don't think a little bit of shame is going to be unbelievers' biggest problem. They're going to drop dead in fear. And in context, I don't think this is talking about unbelievers. The shrinking away is going to be Christians who are ashamed of the way they've been living. Christians have a choice. It's not a choice of what family you're born into. Um, Elijah, I don't know where he went. He was just here a moment ago. Bryson is there. Bryson, did you have a whole lot of choice into which family you were born? Dan, did I hear him say yes? No, he said no. He's going to be brilliant, just like his dad. So we hear a no. Gerald, is, he, is Bryson always going to be your son? Yes. He's always going to be your son. In what way? How? Genetically. Genetically by birth, right? But, Gerald, because they're already your children, Elijah and Bryson have a choice of whether or not they're going to honor you and Andrea with the remainder of their life, right? But in no way are they ever going to cease being your children. Good. This illustrates that free will of the Christian. You can choose or not, or choose not to obey your your father. You get to have that choice. Now, the unsaved person doesn't have that option. Jesus said in John chapter eight, verse forty-two, "If God were your father, you would love me." Jesus says. Notice God is not their father. Jesus continues, For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me, Jesus said. Why do you not understand what I am saying? And then he supplies the answer. It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. That's the devil. It's his nature. So unbelievers have a rebellious, fallen nature. It resembles their father a whole lot, the devil. And unless by the Holy Spirit they're somehow born again, they exist in the outer domain of darkness, Colossians tells us. They're in the darkness. They have not been transferred yet into the kingdom of his beloved son. And they can't do anything that honors God. Because Romans chapter 3 verse 10 reminds us concerning the unsaved person that there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. The unsaved man is unrighteous. He doesn't seek nor understand God or Scripture 
because they're spiritually dead. They don't have the Holy Spirit in their heart. They're not indwelt by the Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that the unsaved person can't donate money to, to build a children's hospital. That's not what it's saying. What it teaches is the unsaved person can't become righteous by building a children's hospital. Uh, that's because that act of charity wasn't given to honor God the Father in heaven. The act was orchestrated in some way or some fashion to honor self. Because honoring the risen Christ is not part of that unsaved person's model of charitable giving, his or her works are like filthy rags to God. Filthy rags. Because all that individual possesses is that fallen nature unable to worship God in spirit and truth. They're not born again. Here's the reason I say all this concerning the passage today. Um, John, the Apostle John, would never ask an unsaved person to abide in Christ. This command is for saved people. Abide in Christ. And, And because of the fact we know full well that we can't lose salvation, we have eternal security... Uh, We'll cover that in chapter 5. We really only have one way to interpret this passage when it comes right down to it. The believer has to make a critical choice. That's why John's exhorting them to abide in Christ. You have to choose. So the Christian, we we have this constant struggle inside. Uh, We have this spiritual rebirth. So our our hearts are alive to God, right? We love God. We have the spiritual rebirth. We want to serve Him. But we also still have sinful fleshly bodies that are always nagging us to sin. We're always nagged by that desire to sin as well. And this is that conundrum that Christians experience of the already and not yet. Uh, We'll find this represented in this passage. We are already God's children, but we're not yet escaped of the influence of the sin of our lives, the presence of sin. So there there exists this tension in the Christian's life between sin and righteousness. Skip chapter 3, uh, skip to chapter 3 and, and skip verse 1, and we'll come back to that. Look at verse 2. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God. Notice the already there. And it has not yet appeared as to yet what we will be. So notice the not yet. But Christians have a hope in the future, and that's because verse 2 continues, right? It says, we know that when Christ appears, what? We will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. So we currently have this, this fleshly, fallen body that is ambitious to sin. But when, when Christ appears at his second advent, We'll, we'll receive what are known as glorified bodies that no longer yearn to sin. We'll finally be like Him, and not like Him in becoming gods. We're going to be like Him in receiving sinless, glorified bodies. You might remember in, in Matthew chapter 17, that's what we know of as the transfiguration of Christ. After Christ had just got done telling the disciples what it was going to cost to be a disciple of him. Directly after in Scripture, we find that he took John, James, and Peter up on the holy mountain, right? 
And before their eyes, right before their eyes, Jesus was transfigured. He was changed. The word is metamorpho. Hard one to pronounce. I don't even think I just got it. (laughs) But it's the word that we would see as metamorphosis. A change. There was a change in Jesus. It said that his face shone. And not only that, if you remember in the text, I think the Luke 9 account shows that Elijah and uh, Moses both appeared there in glory. They appeared in glory. Now, I don't know if they got their, their changed bodies early or what, if they weren't waiting for the rest of us. I don't know how that works out. But Elijah and Moses there were in glory as Jesus' body himself was glorified and changed through metamorphosis. He was transfigured. And Colossians chapter 3, verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Just as Christ was glorified in his physical body, what he was doing there was giving the apostles the opportunity to see the future. This is what's going to happen. There's going to be a change, an ultimate change. Just like Jesus received a glorified physical body, we're going to receive glorified physical bodies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul explains this change in our physical bodies, instructing those uh, who will now be alive at the time of the rapture. And Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That means that, that certain believers who are alive at that time won't die. They won't, they won't die. They'll be raptured directly. And Paul says, Behold, I tell you, mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable body, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Sin is what causes us to die. If we didn't sin, we wouldn't die. Adam and Eve in the garden, if they had not disobeyed, they they would have never died. They would have lived on and and the body would have regenerated continually without cells morphing or whatever into cancer. They would have continued to replicate cells and live in immortality with God. So if death is going to be swallowed up in victory, as Paul tells us, how is that going to occur? How how is death swallowed in victory? We're going to receive sinless glorified bodies. That is the victory. We're going to be clothed with a Christ-like glorified body that no longer yearns to sin. So then, we're no longer going to sin. We're no longer going to decay We're never again going to die. We will live in heaven with him for eternity. That is the promise. We will be free from the presence of sin. 
Verse 2 of our text explains what we will become when we see Jesus face to face. It says we will be like him. But in the meantime, Christians have a problem. We experience something like a multi-personality disorder, possibly. Our flesh, our physical body, and and our mental faculties, they, they want to sin, right? But because of our spiritual rebirth, our soul longs to serve God. And the Christian's in a constant battle. Who's going to control him or her? We experience two natures. We have our old sinful nature that even the unbeliever has through physical birth. They have that. But we, in addition, have a spiritual nature. We have that desire to serve God. The conflict. Paul put it in this way in Romans chapter 7. I read this not too long back, but it's very important. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, Paul says, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. That is sin. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. That means that he now morally agrees with the law. It's good. So now, now listen to this. Paul says, So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, he says, For the willing, that means the desire to do good, is present in me. But the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. Listen to this. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, as a born-again person, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. In Paul's final statement, I find then this principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Isn't that perfectly describe our lives? That desire to sin, but that hate of it, and wanting to serve our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He said, The redeemed part of him isn't even the one doing it. Paul says it's the flesh that is doing it. Doesn't say he doesn't have responsibility for that. This is going to be very important, essential actually to understanding our passage next week and a passage that is in chapter 5 that talks about if anyone sins or not of God. You're going to need to understand this principle that sin lives in you even though you are redeemed and righteous before God. That's another reason why it's so important week to week to be in church is so that you're constantly tracking. We all take vacations. We all have summer things. We all do this. But really, week to week when you're working through Scripture, if you aren't picking up where you've been, you get half as much as you go along in the letter. This is the conflict of the Christian Our flesh wants to sin while our spirit, now alive to God through rebirth, restrains us from that sin. It restrains us. And the more that we feed our spirit through things like scripture, fellowship, service, all these different things, the stronger that our spiritual gets. And the more that we feed our lusts, 
whatever fashion that is, whatever sin is your choice, the more you feed that, the stronger that gets. Which way are you going to go? The stronger one side gets what you eat, the stronger it is. You're nourished by what you eat. Really, actually, it's you really are what you eat. Are you eating the spiritual? Or are you eating the fleshly? What are you consuming? So the, the Holy Spirit restrains us from being as bad as we want to be in our flesh. The unbeliever doesn't have that. They're restrained by what? They're restrained by the laws of government. They're restrained by the fear of getting caught, by the possibility of losing their individual freedom by incarceration. They also might fear the loss of a spouse by committing adultery. That might restrain them. They might fear the loss of their financial independence if they cheat on their taxes too much. So they are always restrained by the penalty. That's what the unbeliever fears most, is losing his or her freedom or reputation by being exposed for what they really are. While what the Christian fears most is dishonoring their father and being forced to turn away in shame when he returns again. To summarize, the primary restraint of the unbeliever, that's external. Where the primary restraint from sin from the believer is internal. Because we're born again. So here again is our point. If you're born again and you're God's child, you must decide if you're going to live in service or if you're going to live in shame. Is the temporal gratification of feeding the flesh more important than pleasing Christ when he comes? Are you going to invest the, these, these few short decades in the gutter, or are you going to live a life of purity to honor your Father throughout eternity? Where have you placed your hope? Where is your hope today? Is your hope in these little things that are temporal, the little sins, the little possessions that are temporal... Or is your hope in the future return of Jesus Christ? Verse 3 assures us, everyone who has this hope fixed on Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. So is it possible for the believer to sin? A few moments ago, Paul just told us, of course, I even get the urge of sin and I hate it. But Paul hates the sin. All believers hate sin. But we all do it, I do it, you do it, some level. And there can come a level of sinning in the believer's life where his or her existence is best described by shame. Immorality, adultery, greed, lust, hate. If these characterize your life, how will you personally respond if Christ returns today? If they characterize your life these sins, you would turn away in shame, right? You would shrink in shame. How bad can it get for the believer? How bad can sin become for the believer? Have you heard about David and Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, who David murdered, by the way? How about... uh, Uh, Late in life, Solomon built altars to Kamash and Molech for his wives. How about Abraham? He had his beautiful wife, Sarah, 
And to protect his own skin, he allowed her to be taken into the custody of the house of Pharaoh. That's pretty bad. And I know there's going to be people who say, you know, I don't think that can happen today. Uh, Because of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, the permanent indwelling, I don't think it can digress to that point. Uh, Perhaps that's true. Perhaps by the time the Christian openly rebels to that level that we see there, maybe the Father will intervene. In fact, that's exactly what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's the question. In, in Corinth, the church in Corinth at the time Paul wrote them, was that church characterized by uh, perfection or Christian rebellion? Rebellion, wasn't it? They, they, there we find sectarianism. People within the church form privileged groups according to who they've been baptized by. Some were reveling in sexual immorality. Others were bringing lawsuits against one another. And even before the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we find that people were breaking off into little groups and not allowing others to partake in the love feast. In fact, in, in Corinthians... 1 Corinthians, when people were coming to communion, they weren't so much unconfessed and unrepentant sin. In fact, they were just overlooking it. And what was the Father doing? Because of that blatant, horrible, disgusting sin. Do you remember what God did? Some of them had been what? They died. God took their life because they were sinning so badly. Hebrews 12 assures us that God disciplines those who belong to Him, right? God will discipline His children if you are His children. There comes a point there will come discipline. And in doing so, God has at least two objectives. First, you know, that death removes that horrible role model from the church, especially the younger folks who might observe and be lured into that same sin. The second thing is, is that death prevented that believer from piling up any more guilt, piling up any more shame before that they would die. So God takes them out early. So God says, you know what, I'm taking you out. You're a harm to my church. You're a harm to yourself. Some of them died. So we know it's possible for a Christian to sin to an extent that the Lord will terminate their physical life. That's in the New Testament. And because of their unwillingness to confess and repent of the sin, it's unto the point of death, right? So there is a sin unto death. That's going to be very important to understand when we progress to chapter 5. You can sin to a point God pulls you out of the game and permanently benches you. It is sinning unto death. What you lose is opportunity to serve. Any rewards that would come with it, you surrender your life that's supposed to be used to honor him. Sin unto death. What level of sin is that? At what point does God say, I'm taking you out? We don't know. We don't know what it is. The scripture doesn't outline what that is. It doesn't tell us. If you were God, would you? Would you tell people exactly what the point is? Think of this illustration once, suppose you um, buy a new car. Let's say you buy a really fancy new car, really nice. What, what are the most expensive new cars out there? 
Bentleys? Bentleys, Ferraris, Maserati. Let's say you buy something really nice, brand new. You got it set up on 10 years payments, all right? Because you don't make that much. You work down at the corner store, but you're able to get financed. And you've got this beautiful car. You've got a teenage son that you can't get insured on it. So only you can drive it. Only you are insured, and you're going to be paying for the next 10 years on that 300000 bucks. At what point, and, and bear with me here, have a little grace, at what point of disobedience with your son would you finally choke him? <laughs> He's not insured, you've got debt, and it's sitting in the garage and you're at work during the day and sometimes he gets home early from church. Would it be, he gets home early from school, would it be when he sits in the car? No. Probably not, right? When he goes and drives it? Would it be when he makes one trip around the block and back in the car? Is that when you would finally... No, probably not. Would it be, as Ferris Bueller did, would it be when he puts 500 miles on it with a friend? Boy, you're really getting close now, aren't you? Son, you're in jeopardy. What if you have that debt and somehow the son takes it out uninsured and totally wrecks it out? You're done. You're never driving again, ever, right? There comes a point, you don't know exactly where that is, where you're going to bring the end. But here's the deal. God, you're going to say, stay away from that car. And our, our goal as Christians is never to get as close to the disobedience as we can. It's never to get as close to testing how far it is until something really bad trips or God takes our life. Our goal as a Christian is supposed to be living as close to Christ as we can. We shouldn't ever get near the car. We shouldn't drive the car. We shouldn't do the sin. God isn't going to say, well, you can go to this point. Because if he did, really honestly, we'd go there. Some people would take it to that point because I know there's no consequence yet. I'll take it right there to that point. Getting as close to sin as we can get is never the Christian's objective. What is there left? There's only one proper response to God. Only one proper response is in verse 1. Look with me if you will. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God as such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it does not know Him. Abiding in a life of purity and righteousness, that's the only, the only responsible option for what God did for us on the cross. That's the only alternative. And when you live for that purpose... There's no shame in that. And when we're dwelling on abiding in righteousness, when we face Christ, we can face with confidence. We're abiding in Him. There's going to be no reason to turn away in shame because we've been so busy. We've been so distracted by serving Him. We've been so distracted by honoring Him and worshiping Him and talking to our neighbors about Jesus Christ and helping our neighbors when they, when they need a hand, and attending church, and, and loving our neighbor, and evangelizing people, and volunteering, we're not going to have any time to bring shame on ourselves. Because we're serving, and we're abiding in Him. You know, sometimes you hear 
hear out in the world that people say that Christians are lazy. I definitely don't see that here. Now, I don't know where they get that. Most of the time, we're way too busy to get involved with what they're getting involved with. We wake up too early to stay up late night watching porn. We're too busy working on Friday evening to get something done to help a neighbor or a friend in order to stop by for a few belts at the bar. We're just too busy. And a disciplined Christian, yeah, just be all too tired to get involved with any of that, right? You're working, you're with your family, you're loving your kids. Your spare time is characterized by doing things that honor God. You're biting without shame in that situation. There's, no, there's really no reasonable alternative for a Christian. But there does remain an unreasonable, irrational, unexplainable option of throwing this whole life away for a few short years of sin. There's extreme danger to that same concept, a very, really real danger to abiding in disobedience. Especially if you say to yourself, you know what, I'm not all that disciplined, not really good with staying away from things that I enjoy. Uh, Instead, it'd probably just be easier these last few years, you know, to kind of indulge and satisfy the flesh, and you know what, I'll just kind of skate in at the end. By the skin of my teeth. You remember, you know, people say that. I think some will make it by the skin of their teeth. Some will. You know, and if if Christ comes today, I might turn away in shame for a moment. But at least I'm in. That's how the rationale goes. Here's the problem with that faulty logic. If that is your attitude, the question logically arises, are you really in? If you have that lax approach, is that evidence of a spiritually regenerate heart and a saved life? Or could you be deceived by Satan into thinking that you're a Christian due to your intellectual assent about facts of Christ? Facts about Jesus. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, that's he who will enter into heaven. He goes on, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles? Jesus says, and to them I will declare, I never knew you. Could that be the reason that an individual is not all that concerned about pleasing God the Father? It's because you're just in the wrong family. Who is your daddy? That's what you need to ask today. Someone said to Jesus, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father, he says, Who is in heaven? He is my brother and my sister and my mother. That overarching theme in Scripture, that overarching theme is the best way of determining who's in the family is who looks like the father. 
We don't know. We can't see one another's hearts. We don't know who is and who isn't. Pretty much any group that you talk to here or any church or any place you go, it's a mixed group. You have some believers, some unbelievers. Jesus said, or James said, excuse me, as far as just knowing stuff about Jesus, he said, even the demons believe. They shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Jesus comforted a woman, Martha. Her brother Lazarus had died. You probably remember that story, and this is how we'll end. Martha said to him, to Jesus, that is, Lazarus had died, I know that he will rise again, meaning Lazarus, in the resurrection on the last day. He's going to get one of those glorified bodies. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me, Jesus says, will never die. And Jesus said to her, and here's the question to you right now. He said to Martha, do you believe this? That's the question. Do you believe it? Do you believe you are a sinner who God could send to hell because your life is disobedience? Do you believe you're separated from God apart from Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect sinless life, who did what you could not do, you could have never lived a sinless life, and Jesus said, I'm going to hang on a cross, take your punishment, I'm going to die so that you don't have to. Then on the third day he rose to prove everything that he had said, his whole ministry, everything is true. Everything is real. You need to put your faith in Jesus Christ today. Had a friend, a friend from my hometown up in North Dakota got killed a couple days ago on a motorcycle, car accident. Didn't see it coming. Are you going to wait? Or are you going to come to Christ now? I'm going to pray to pray a prayer similar to receive Jesus Christ as a substitute for your sins and live your life abiding in Him. Lord, what a difficult road we have here as Christians to navigate through a life. Children of yours, Lord, in a fallen world. We know in Hebrews 11, this is nothing new. This is what we should expect. The world um, rejects us, Lord, because we honor your Son. Lord, the, the world allures us with everything that they have, all the sins and enticements and everything, Lord, trying to draw us in so that we will not abide in you, Lord. We pray now that everyone here has made that decision to follow you and abide without shame. Lord, protect us from our flesh. Lord, protect us from what it wants to do. Strengthen us through your spirit, Lord God, to live a life honorable to you, honorable to our Father, Lord God, and send us the spirit to do it. Lord, today I pray you're working in the hearts of those here, that the Holy Spirit is convicting regenerating and sealing unto the day of redemption. Lord, we thank you. Lord, if there's anyone here to, that needs to make that decision, dear God, please let them make it now to follow you. We thank you for it in advance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.